are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Good morning. My name is Simon. I'm married to Lisa and we have two kids named Esther and Joel. We joined Hope Church just over a year ago, just before a few weeks before the world was turned upside down with Covid. Before that, we moved into Guildford after spending the previous four years in Texas with my work. The last couple of years have certainly been an interesting time, both adjusting to English life and culture, but also the challenges of lockdown. During that time, I've been really thankful to all of those of you who have served in the kids and youth ministries over the last year, and also our life group who have really welcomed us into the church. I'm also looking forward to finally meeting many of you in person and finding an identity that's not just the father of Esther and Joel. I've been a follower of Jesus since the age of 23, when I was invited to read an account of Jesus's life in Mark's Gospel and challenged to take what I was reading seriously. This is the first time I preached to the church, um, so I am a little nervous, but I also think it's going to be exciting, so let me pray as we begin. Father God, thank you for your word, thank you for your Bible, thank you for this historical account of the early church um, in the book of Acts, thank you for all that we've learned um, in the past few weeks as we've looked at it together. I just pray um, now as we come to Acts chapter 6 that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of our lives helping us to understand more about you, um, helping us know more about ourselves, and helping us know how we can um, love and know you more. In Jesus' name, Amen. Dave was frustrated. Dave was fed up with the endless tasks, or the seemingly endless tasks, that his boss kept handing him. His boss never took notice or congratulated him, in completing any of the tasks. But every time he spoke to him, there was something new, another duty to undertake. If only he was the boss, if only Dave was in charge, he would do it differently. He'd do things his way. Well, Dave's not alone in this feeling. 
if I'm honest. I often feel this way in many areas of my life. It's not just the workplace. We can develop this frustration with our friends and family members, our politicians, our football team, even our church. But so what would Dave or we do if we were the boss and in charge of everything? What would we do? Stop coronavirus better. Stop global warming. Ban petrol cars. Give families more free time. Reduce taxes. Tax the rich more. Well, the list of options goes on, but what would you do if you were the boss, the president, or even the king? What kind of kingdom would you create? As we pick up the story of the early Christian church, we arrive at Acts chapter 6, kindly read to us by Ben. After rising from the dead, Jesus spent time with his disciples, explaining many things. Then he commanded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost arrives and the Holy Spirit begins to appear at a great witness. The apostles experience undertake miraculous speech and bravery and healing and wonders as they stand up and become witnesses to the life and death of Jesus. God is building his church as thousands gather to hear the preaching about, te sorry, the teaching about Jesus, put their trust in him, repent and are baptised. The young Christian church is growing in numbers every day and this period of witness and growth continues despite increasing persecution probably over a one to two year period, at which point we arrive at the events in chapter six. I'm gonna use a simple three point structure as we journey through these events of chapter six together, starting with the challenges of a growing kingdom. God is growing his kingdom, but something is about to change by the start of chapter 8, we read of a great persecution that will scatter the early church out of Jerusalem. God's about to shake things up, and chapter 6 is the pivot point. Up until now, the focus of the church has been firmly established in Jerusalem. The first apostles, Jesus' chosen leaders for the church, are mainly a group of uneducated fishermen, but they're all Jews, descendants from the family line of Abraham from the provinces of Judea and Galilee. Their first language was the Jewish language of Hebrew, even though they live under the occupation of the Roman Empire. God is growing his kingdom, and in chapter 6 we will see tensions arise. The good news of Jesus is spreading quickly, and now Jews from outside of Jerusalem are hearing the good news as they visit Jerusalem for their religious festivals, and they're putting their trust in Jesus. These visitors are referred to as Hellenistic Jews in verse 1, probably because their first language was Greek, the language of the neighbouring nations as a legacy of the Greek Empire. Although both groups are Jews, you can imagine some tensions starting to, to develop between them. Surely the, Hebrew, sorry, surely the Hebrew Jews are the real deal. They're the original believers, plus they live and speak the Hebrew language. Sorry, the Hebrew culture. Not some watered-down blend of the nations around them. We learn that an issue has developed. 
Hellenistic Jews complain that their widows are being overlooked by the daily distribution of food. The daily distribution of food appears to be the habit of individuals in the early church of sharing their possessions and food to ensure that no one is in need. We read about this communal sharing in previous chapters of Acts. But now the church has grown to a size, we see that attention's developed. The Hellenistic Jews feel that they're being overlooked, perhaps deliberately by some, or maybe by an unconscious bias by many. The Hellenistic Jews feel that they're being treated as second-class believers compared to the original Hebrew Jews. God is growing his kingdom. Growth brings change, and change inevitably leads to tensions. I say that again. God is growing his kingdom. Growth brings change, and change inevitably leads to tensions. Why is it? that we instinctively don't like change? The answer is it usually brings about an alteration of our environment or status that we're not in control of. It's like going down a rapid in a kayak. My daughter Esther had the joy of kayaking on the River Way just down the road with her school a couple of weeks ago. I'm talking here about quite a different kind of river, a fast-moving rapid. The gradient is steep and white crest can be seen as the water crashes on the rocks on either side. Our plastic kayak and our life jackets suddenly don't feel enough as we grip tightly to the paddle because we want some sense of being in control. And the truth is, we're not. The water rushing past is taking us downstream, whether we like it or not. So how do the church leaders, the apostles, respond to this challenge? The answer is simple. They gather together, probably pray, then they come up with a simple, pragmatic solution. The apostles ask the church to choose seven men from among them that are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And the apostles commission the seven through prayer and the laying on of hands for the responsibility for the sharing of the daily distribution. The solution works. The issue is resolved. And in verse 7 we read, So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. God's kingdom is continuing to grow. The latest obstacle to growth has been overcome by the appointment of seven men to wait on tables. Waiting on tables in our culture today sounds like a purely practical task, which hides the significance of what is taking place in the story. In the Jewish culture of the first century, the distribution of food at the table was the responsibility of the head of the household. Jesus himself took on this role at the Last Supper when he stood up, gave thanks and distributed the bread and the wine. The seven are not merely being chosen to carry food to tables. No, they're being appointed to positions of leadership within the church. Earlier in chapter 2 of Acts, we read that 3,000 believers were added to the church in a single day. Seven men are never going to be merely enough to merely carry food to tables. 
Now, these seven are to be leaders responsible for the oversight and distribution to the needy among the church. Now, the appointment of trustworthy leaders with the responsibility for teams of people is a pragmatic solution used elsewhere by God's people in the Bible. Either Moses in the desert after the exodus of 600,000 men and their families from Egypt, or Paul's advice in his letter to the young church leader Titus. But what is really exciting about this passage is that the names of the seven men listed in chapter 6 are all Greek. The new church leaders are from the Hellenistic Jews. So we start chapter 6 with the leadership of the church being the 12 Hebrew apostles. But by the end of these seven verses, we now have a church with a mix of leaders from both inside and outside of Jerusalem. What is more, we're told one of the men, Nicholas from Antioch, is a convert to Judaism. Nicholas, one of the new church leaders, was not even born to the family line of Abraham. The focus of God's kingdom is moving. God is growing his kingdom, forcing a change that will enable further growth and spread. This growth is not coming about by clever planning and strategy of the church leadership. No, rather it's God at work. And the leaders are simply taking pragmatic steps in response to the changes and in line with God's values. God is growing his kingdom. Growth inevitably leads to change. Change leads to tensions. How are we going to respond to those tensions? The selection criteria for the seven new leaders is outlined by the apostles in verse 3. Men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom what does this mean? Well, we catch some understanding of the character of, the two, of two of the men as the story continues to unfold in the next two chapters of Acts. In verse 8, we read that Stephen was a man full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen has been appointed to a practical duty, but he's also comfortable to stand up and defend the good news of Jesus under conflict and persecution. In chapter 7, Stephen stands up and recounts to the high priests in Jerusalem the story of God's rescue plan from the promise to Abraham to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Stephen knows the scripture. Stephen knows God's word inside out. Stephen is a man fully trusting in God's promise of eternal life in the new creation, even to the point of death in this world. Stephen looks to heaven and does not give in to the fear of man. We also learn more of a second man, Philip, in chapter 8. Philip takes an important role in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the region of Samaria as the church is scattered under persecution. Philip follows an angel's command and finds himself invited to explain the scripture to an important official from the distant land of Ethiopia. Philip too is a man ready to do battle with the sword of the spirit. 
Philip knows and can explain God's word. Philip is a man ready to follow God's lead for the sake of the kingdom of God. So what? Why is the character of these men important? Is it simply these are characteristics we should look for in our leaders? Chris, Phil, Stuart? No, I believe there's much of their character that we can look to emulate in our own lives. Whether we're appointed as a team leader on a serving team or simply volunteer on a team, there will be a moment that comes when each of us will need to make a conscious choice. Do we follow the wisdom of the world and brush the task aside as quickly as possible to get back on with life? Or do we take the moment to go the extra mile, to speak to the person you don't recognise, to study God's word so that you have a clear explanation of what it means to the, today to the group, or to take the time to bless and pray for the person that is suffering and in need. These acts of service may well go overlooked and unnoticed by our friends and our family. We may even suffer mockery and complaints. Come on, Dad, I want to go home. But we go the extra mile because we know that's what God wants and he notices when we do it. The character of a servant in God's kingdom matters. Let us be like Stephen and Philip, men and women, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. At this point, I have to admit my guilt. When I was first invited to have the opportunity to speak to the church, I was definitely excited. The details came through and I saw I'd be speaking on these verses in Acts chapter 6. I have to be honest, my heart sank. Seven verses on serving. Great. I definitely felt I had the short straw. You know, I can see the parallel with our church's need for volunteers to serve as we begin meeting together. You all know the deal by now. At this point, we're still short of volunteers for setup and refreshment, for kids and the crash teams. You can sign up on Church Suite. But really, the, the new guy gets to stand up, crack the whip, come on everyone, you need to get on and sign up for these t teams. I'll probably never be spoken to in church again. However, as I dug into these verses, I asked myself, why did God, in his sovereignty, make Luke write this account? On the face of it, this passage appears to be a rather trivial practical detail squeezed in between some pretty awesome spirit-filled awesome spirit actions and speeches. Yet, somehow, God by his spirit worked through Luke to write these events down for us. What is the significance? What does God want us to learn here?
As I sought to answer this question, I found myself digging through almost all the books of the Old Testament as I looked at passages about widows and the fatherless. What I saw was that caring for the vulnerable has always been close to God's heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, just after the nation of Israel were given the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, God tells his people, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. This is God's own nature, God's own character being described. God is utterly great and awesome, but he's also defined by his care for the vulnerable and the needy. I can list a handful of people who have done great actions to bring about social justice in this world, but God is more than that. Every deed and word of the Lord's has at its heart a care to end oppression forever. God is social justice. 700 years after these words to Moses, God used the prophet Isaiah to berate his people for not living a life that honoured him. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fathers. Plead the case of the widow. The Jewish people were very good at their temple ceremonies and outward religion. But they had missed the point. The religion that God wants from us is to have a heart like his, a heart devoted to the oppressed and the marginalised. Another 700 years later, Jesus our Lord walked on the earth. The night before his death on the cross, Jesus got up from the meal that he was having with his disciples. He took off his outer clothing and washed his disciples' feet in a basin, taking the role of a lowly servant. Jesus told his disciples, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you, that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Service is at the very core of God's kingdom. A life choosing to put other, people's, other people first is the religious fruit that God desires because that is his very character. The kingdom that God has created 
is built upon the servant king, Jesus, who laid down his life that we can be welcomed in. We do not enter the kingdom because of the family we're born into or because of our good deeds. We enter the kingdom of God by being washed by the blood of Jesus and are clothed in royal robes for a life of service. As I approach the end of the message this morning, let me summarise. These seven verses in Acts tell us of an apparently trivial practical problem in the early church. The pragmatic solution was to appoint new leaders within the growing church to coordinate the service of God's people and thereby provide for the needs of both the vulnerable and the needy through these acts of service. These verses matter because we too will face those challenges as God continues to grow his kingdom. Our serving one another matters because that in fact is what God's kingdom is. God's kingdom is a group of people who have put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and who choose to live a life of caring for the vulnerable and putting other people's needs first. God's kingdom is our serving one another and those around us as we meet together to glorify him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are King of Kings, the creator of the whole universe. Yet you chose to come into this world and to suffer a humiliating death on the cross so that we could be welcomed into your kingdom, that we could have our sins washed away, that we could be made clean, that we could become children, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you that you lift us up from our lowly positions to places of honour, but help us um, to be like you, to not stand in those places of honour, but to take the humble role of a servant as we look to serve those in our community around us and each other as church. Help us, Lord Jesus. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchgilford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.